Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Desert Conference. Our speaker in this podcast is Russell Berman, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Islamism and American Strategy, and it was recorded on March 12, 2018. Thanks for being here. I guess I have the, uh, the honor of giving you the after lunch talk, so it's my job to keep you awake. Uh, in that spirit, let me begin with a uh, somewhat uh, off-topic anecdote, but really it leads right into the material. A colleague of mine in political science at Stanford tells the story that he was, was with, at a reception with, with students, and one student comes up to him and says, um, conservative professors like you, dot, 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 at which point my colleague interrupts and says, wait, how do you know that I'm conservative? I never talk about politics in the classroom. The student replies, that's how I know. Uh, uh, so that's a, 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 a slice of life from the American university today. Um, uh, in, um, in my classrooms, I, in fact, try not to talk about my politics. Uh, try not to give away uh, my own partisanship. I try to present evidence, try to make arguments, try to uh, show material, whether it's literary and cultural material or political material, and try to leave it up to smart students to draw their own conclusions. Um, but we're not in a classroom today, uh, and I, I'm not going to grade you on this. It's not going to be a test. Uh, so I can say um, where I'm coming from on this discussion of American foreign policy strategy and Islamism in the Middle East today. You know, I think uh, things are heading in a good direction. I think the leadership in Washington actually has moved the ball down the field in productive ways. There are a lot, many challenges. Uh, nothing, it's never the case that everything is resolved. There are big challenges that we face. But when we think back to the previous administration, it's night and day. When we think back at the losses that the previous administration gave us with that miserable deal with Iran, uh, but uh, beyond that, in our relations with, uh, with Saudi Arabia, with Israel, with Egypt, a lot of damage was done. In the meantime, a lot of repair work has been done as well, and I think we can be uh, fairly satisfied with the, uh, the tenor of the foreign policy and its execution. Um, that's, that's my bias. Uh, call me on it, if you like, in the, in the Q&A, but that's where I'm coming from. Um, the working group on Islamism and the world order has a um, two-part uh, designation. Islamism, that is, we study political Islam, which is largely but not exclusively a matter of the Middle East. Uh, of course, the Islam is a global religion, and Islamism is found around the world, and its impact, well, it even struck San Bernardino. Um, international order, that means foreign policy, but in a context where things seem to be changing pretty rapidly. The, notion of a monopolar world that came out of uh, the end of the Soviet Union where the United States seemed to be the only game in town, that's ended. Uh, what's ended is an international order in which one assumed that some notion of law and institutional international institutions would determine the framework for activity. Instead, We've entered a much more competitive world, a much more adversarial world, where the United States faces uh, opponents who, if not as strong as the United States, are not negligible, uh, Russia and China in particular. 
So there are lots of moving parts as to what's going on. And what I'm trying to do is think through how Islamism feeds into that. Islamism represents an, a threat to the United States, but it's not the only threat. How can we be smart about thinking about Islamism and American strategy today? I think one way to be smart is to do something that we Americans are not always really good at, and that is uh, by having memory. And we should begin our encounter with Islam going back to 1979 and the uh, hostage uh, takeover in, uh, in Iran in the context of the revolution. Seems a long time ago, but what has not changed is that the Iranian regime remains hostile to the international order. What was significant about that was not just the vicious anti-Americanism and the brutality of the event. The issue was that with that, with that hostage taking, the Iranian regime really broke, broke um, uh, relations with the whole notion of diplomacy. The expectation of the world order since the West Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 is that diplomats are there to carry on discussions among countries. And while you may have uh, hostile relations, you don't, you don't attack the diplomats. And that's what they did. Henry Kissinger has said, Iran has a problem in deciding whether it's a country or whether it's a cause. And I believe that the, Iranians, the Iranian leadership still understands itself as a cause and therefore not necessarily acting even in Iranian national interest. But you can also remember that that was resolved too. Uh, uh, the hostages uh, were free uh, as Reagan was sworn in. And I think that's a good marking point to, to, to recall how a robust, forceful president uh, and his presentation of the self-understanding of the United States can really make a difference. I think it's a good thing to have a president who puts forward a uh, forward-thinking, activist notion of the American role in the world rather than an apologetic one. 1979, one dramatic encounter with Islamism. Shia Islamism, Iranian Islamism. Uh, but there was another, uh, and that was, of course, uh, 2001. We should not forget this either. This is Sunni extremism. You know the Muslim world is divided between these two main, main, uh, main camps. Uh, and the uh, consequences of 9-11 um, still remain uh, inscribed in our, in our thinking. So 1979, 2001, and here we are decades later. How do we think about Islamism and American strategy today? Uh, think about the recent history, uh, that moment of American primacy after the opening of the Berlin Wall and soon after that the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, the 1990s, which of course don't show up here, the Clinton era, kind of uh, confused interregnum when an international order was assumed to prevail but where lots, was, lots of opportunities were probably lost. But think about the uh, last three presidents. Uh, George Bush and his democracy agenda, the notion that uh, we could spread democracy not only into Eastern Europe but around the world. I think that that, that, that not, not dishonorable ideal led to excessive optimism about what could happen in Iraq and the Middle East in general.
I don't hear a lot of enthusiasm for that kind of uh, uh, democracy agenda any anymore. Um, I'll confess, uh, I wasn't excited about it as well back then, the notion that the world could become democratic and liberal and humane fairly easily the way it had become so in Eastern Europe. But that seems to be part of the past. Replaced then after the the all of the suffering of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq with uh, Obama's uh, foreign policy, which I believe has really only weakened us. Uh, the announcement of a pivot to Asia really never led to a pivot to Asia and only led to a kind of pretext to disengage from the Middle East, giving up important gains that we had achieved in Afghanistan and Iraq in particular. You remember the, the optimism of the so-called reset with Russia, which certainly hasn't led us very far, but it's an important aspect to remember as well when we think about foreign policy debates today too. If there has been an insinuation that uh, President Trump was excessively um, inclined to try to find an accommodation with Russia, well, he's not the first president to have done that. It's not, it's not from Mars, the notion that a U.S. president might want to find an accommodation with, with Russia. Obama certainly did, and George W. Bush did. Remember, remember Bush looking into Putin's eyes. So, uh, but that, that uh, uh, Obama's reset with Russia, I've talked about this at Hoover events before, and his suggestion, you may recall, in his hot mic moment where he conceded that uh, uh, he'd have more flexibility after he was re-elected, uh, that only got us the invasion of Ukraine. And it gave us the, uh, the, the deal with Iran, and it gave us a sense throughout the Middle East that the United States was no longer there, was no longer reliable, that was the United States was on a, was on a path of withdrawal. And now we have uh, Donald Trump, uh, and uh, we know how hotly he was debated in the public sphere before the election, how he remains the target of all sorts of punditry after the election, and one can uh, pick at this piece of his self-presentation or that piece of his self-presentation, but the notion that an American president would present the United States non-apologetically and as a forceful and powerful uh, player in the world does not seem to me to be wrong. Uh, I understand that, but uh, I, that's how I understand his notion of making America great again. Uh, in a competitive world where we face adversaries, where China is pushing back against us and Russia is pushing back against us, and China and Russia each use each use uh, sidekicks, North Korea and Iran to push back against us, and it's time for us to push back again then, I think, is the message of Trumpian foreign policy uh, in, the, with a, in, a, in, a, in a bird's eye view. Uh, and we'll have to see what comes of what I regard as a very exciting opening with North Korea. It turns out that uh, at least three, three, three administrations of both parties full of professionals with uh, North Korea experts only got us a set of nuclear missiles aimed at California. Uh, I can't regard that as a success. Uh, I don't know what the outcome of the, uh, of the summit uh, with uh, the North Koreans will be, but certainly it seems to have opened up a possibility of moving towards some kind of resolution. I wish him luck. Uh, how do we think about Islamism? Now, coming back from the world to my specific topic, uh, I think it's really important that we uh, retain some kind of proportionality when we think about Islamism. Uh, it's not the only issue in American foreign policy. We shouldn't 
remember 1979 and 2001 in a traumatizing way that we're only fixated on that. The world is bigger than Islamism, but Islamism plays a big role in the, in, in, in the world. We have to get, gauge the proportional significance of this in the, in the right way. I think it's also important to be able to make a distinction between Islamism and Islam. What terminology the government should use is a question for politicians and public relations experts. But for us thinking about it analytically, we can, ought to be able to distinguish between Islam, a world religion of a billion plus people in all sorts of variations, and Islamism, a set of extremist political invocations of that religion in order to wreak havoc in the world. Uh, therefore, it's wrong for us to present that this, to, to claim that this has nothing to do with Islam, but it's equally wrong to assume that it's only about Islam. Um, there are Muslims in the Middle East and beyond who have been victims of Islamist attacks. The Islamist war is at least as much a civil war within the Muslim world as it is a war against the West. Um, the extremists who blow up mosques uh, in Afghanistan, in, uh, in, in, in uh, Iraq and elsewhere claim that they are acting in the name of Islam against other Muslims whom they declare to be heretics. Therefore, we, from the outside, and luck fortunate enough not to be living there, but living here, should be willing to distinguish between Islam and Islamism and recognize that for the United States to succeed in the Middle East, but really beyond, as I'll show, the United States has to be prepared to develop a foreign policy that engages productively with allies and potential allies in the Muslim world. We don't want to make all Muslims our enemies only because a fraction of Muslims are our sworn enemies. We have to be smart about this. Uh, one reason why that can sometimes be difficult, I believe, is that we in the West, we in the United States, have our own set of cultural problems. We're worried about the uh, dissolution of um, value systems. We're worried about uh, the uh, status of religion in our own culture. And therefore, I think we sometimes tend to project our own cultural anxieties onto Islam and end up misinterpreting Islamism. That would be a political flaw that could only harm us. Uh, I want to give you a few accounts of why Islamism matters for American strategy. And the first account is, I've said it before, but here you can see it graphically, uh, Iranian revisionism. Uh, Iran uh, wants to become the hegemonic power in the, in the Middle East. It wants to break out of its national borders and have... Um, uh, military power, economic power, and cultural religious power throughout the region and beyond. This is only the Middle East, and that's, that's plenty for today. But you see that, in, that what, what Iran's ambition is, is to maintain a hegemonic uh, priority, not only in Iraq, just to, uh, just to its west, to your, to your left. Uh, can you make out the map here? Yes? Yeah? 
So, so here's Iran, right? here's Iraq, right? Syria, and then Lebanon. Uh, so this should be the Iranian border. It's doing its best to dominate Iraqi politics, uh, uh, and it wants to maintain the Assad regime in Syria uh, in order to um, uh, dominate politics there. Beyond that, Lebanon, the small country on the Mediterranean, is already effectively in Iranian control. It uh, appears to be an independent state, but it's really run by Hezbollah, which, um, which is fully dependent on, on Iran. If you see this, this redder zone here in the Syria-Iraq area, uh, this is a little bit dated, but that's the zone where the fighting with ISIS has been take, taking, uh, taking place. So Iran is pushing across the, um, across the region to the west, uh, uh, as I said before, with Kissinger's terms, uh, Iran sees itself as a movement, as a cause that should dominate the world. But there's another agenda in this as well. To the extent that uh, Iran faces sanctions from the West and may, I hope, face even greater sanctions in the future, a corridor to Lebanon gives it access to the Mediterranean and a whole set of other trading opportunities that would allow it to evade any potential blockade that might take place uh, uh, in, its own, in, its own in its own waters. Add to that, of course, the uh, aspiration to be able to increase the um, uh, firepower to Israel, just to the south of, of Lebanon. So, this is something we have to be concerned with. We have to be concerned with the fact that Iran is eager to undermine Saudi Arabia, to surround it, perhaps, with uh, uh, sympathetic government in Yemen, and to destabilize uh, the, uh, the kingdom uh, by agitating among the Shia, who make up a significant part of the population in, in, in eastern Saudi Arabia, so right across the Gulf. So Iran is trying to expand its power throughout the region, and that's at odds with uh, American interests. Uh, but it's not only in the Middle East. Uh, Islamism is active uh, around the world. I remind you of Boko Haram, the kidnapping of the, of the girls, the schoolgirls in, in, in Africa. Um, there are Islamist movements elsewhere in Africa. My prediction is that we should pay more and more attention to Africa, not as is usually the case uh, to, by thinking about it in terms of the, um, the poverty and the starvation, et cetera, but because in the next uh, few decades, uh, Africa has a potential of enormous growth, actually. Uh, it's a location of important natural resources, it's gonna be an location of a very young population, and there could be a lot of future in Africa we should be part of that game, not conceded to the Chinese, and to do so, we're going to have to take into account the various uh, Islamist uh, factors in local African politics. Uh, and Islamism matters elsewhere, even further afield. I promised this before. This is uh, maritime Southeast Asia in um, the working group um, uh, that I co-direct uh, publishes a quarterly 
uh, set of commentary. We call it a caravan. Uh, and the one before last was dedicated to the maritime Southeast Asia. So commentary on Islam in this part of the world. Uh, think about Islam and Islamism, of course, you think first of all about the Middle East. But actually, it's Indonesia that is the largest uh, population of Muslims in the, uh, in the world. Uh, the second largest is India. Uh, so these are arenas that are pertinent to the Islam question. They're also, of course, pertinent strategically. These are important trading, trading routes. The Straits of Mallorca here between, between Indonesia and Malaysia, and the Sunda Strait between these two Indonesian islands. These are key to world commerce. Um, we would not be happy if a radical Islamist force were to take over in one or the other of these areas. Indonesia is historically cited as the example of moderate Islam, and it is uh, uh, a very moderate, relatively liberal democratic government, but in parts of Indonesia, there is a radical Muslim force that is developing. Uh, the same we could say for Malaysia. On the one hand, Malaysia, majority Muslim, has developed a model of um, uh, Muslim capitalism, very compatible with what goes on in the West. But there, too, there are radicalizing groups. We have to be paying attention to, to this as part of our foreign policy. And then we come to Europe, to, uh, to Germany. Uh, I won't uh, uh, rehash that, uh, that long history of, um, uh, well, that long, that history that really began in 2015 when Chancellor Merkel decided to open the borders and let in some uh, million Syrians. Uh, and the consequences of this refugee problem uh, for Germany and for, um, and for Europe as a whole. I think one of the consequences has been the dissolution of the EU. Brexit would not have happened had it not been for that. And now we have this uh, pretty bitter split between old Europe, France, Germany, and the new Europe, the former, the former um, uh, Eastern Bloc. But uh, when was it? Uh, uh, 14 months ago, there was the attack on the Christmas fair in Berlin. Uh, and that uh, with a, with a um, Muslim refugee uh, running his car into a crowd of, uh, of gatherers at the, at the Christmas fair. I was there in, in this past December. I don't know if you can make this out, but this is one of the many Christmas fairs they have. This is a concrete barrier that they've put up in order to protect uh, Christmas, uh, Christmas fairs from, uh, from, uh, from, from terrorist attacks. And there's graffiti on this, uh, Danke Merkel. So thank you, Merkel, for, for giving us. Thank you, Merkel, for putting our Christmas fairs under, um, under, the threat of, under the threat of terrorism. And one consequence, of course, has been her enormous unpopularity, uh, demonstrations against her, and a now they finally formed a government in Berlin, but it's a very, very weak government. So this is a, a demonstration against uh, Merkel's uh, having let in the, uh, the refugees, uh, Merkel in a Muslim garb. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the caption, Frau Merkel, here is das Volk. Mrs. Merkel, here's the, here's the people. This is, a, this is a, an echo of the demonstrations at the end of the GDR, at the end of East Germany, when the demonstrators said, we are the people. That's a direct, direct uh, reference back to that. So in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in Europe, Islamism remains a, uh, a, a, a non-insignificant factor in 
the world order and the United States has to pay attention to it. But there are also opportunities. Um, in Indonesia, the United States could reach out and uh, interact productively with the most, uh, most populous Muslim nation in the world. Similarly, in India, uh, the, uh, the Modi government has developed a good rapport with the Trump government and, the, um, uh, and India is not majority Muslim, but it has the second largest Muslim population uh, in the world. The United States can't be, um, uh, sh should not be hindered by our traumas of 1979 and 2001 in a way that would prevent us from interacting productively with, with, these, with these countries. And then, of course, there's the exciting development of reform in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the, um, the new crown prince, uh, understands that Saudi Arabia in the future is not going to be able to rely on its oil-only economy. Is therefore undertaken a set of reforms and is going to have to move them forward against resistance in the elite. Uh, but uh, he too has developed a very productive relationship with, uh, with Washington um, under this administration. Uh, but there are other strategic opportunities. Uh, and here I'm thinking in a kind of Machiavellian way. Uh, accept the thesis that our big adversaries are China and distant second, Russia. Uh, they have their own Islam problems, and we should at least countenance the possibility of exploiting them. Uh, uh, China, uh, as a popul uh, in its Chinese population, is 1.5% Muslim. Significant number of those are the Uyghurs in the northwest province, uh, uh, but there are Muslims throughout the country. Uh, the overseas Chinese populations, in places like Indonesia, by the way, uh, for whom the Beijing government feels itself responsible, it claims to be the government of Chinese everywhere, not just those in the People's Republic. They uh, have also a history of being targeted by Muslim radicals. This is a map of China. You see this is uh, the northwest where the Uyghurs are located. Uh, so. Is this an Achilles heel? Is this something, uh, a weakness, a structural weakness that U.S. foreign policy should consider? Uh, I think there's maybe um, no reason that the United States should intervene to, uh, um, to, to agitate, but there's no reason why the United States should not be attentive to the complaints by the Uyghurs that they're subject to human rights violations. And every time we raise human rights violations against the Uyghurs, we're also playing a card against Beijing. Uh, there's a kind, I think that's, that's a principal position, but there's also a Machiavellian uh, consideration that this is one way we can get at China. Uh, the same holds for Russia. Now, I've left the Chinese data up here to, so you could compare that with the Russian. About the same absolute number of Muslims, but in a much smaller country. We tend to think of Russia as a significant power, but it's a small place with a declining economy. And that's good. 14% uh, uh, Muslims uh, in the Volga region and in the North Caucasus. Uh, these two could represent potential Achilles heels for Russia, uh, which US policy should pay attention to. Um, US 
can also play on the impact of the war in Syria as Russians come back in body bags. This is a, this is a, a weakness of um, Putin that, uh, that we could exploit. Also, Russia faces a similar problem that many of the European countries face. That is that there are Russians uh, who are fighting with ISIS around the world, and sooner or later they're going to come home with a lot of a lot of battle experience, which they may end up using against against Russia. Uh, just really briefly, so a map of Russia. That's the red. Um, here are the. Um, the Volga Muslims, and here are the Muslims in, uh, in the south, in the Caucasus. So they're both in strategically significant locations which we should not lose sight of. And then you look closer at the Caucasus and it becomes even more complicated. The greenish coloration are the, um, are the Muslim populations, uh, dark green Shia, light green uh, Sunni, the reddish, um, colors are various Christian sects. So there too, there's a, a significant weakness on the Russian border in terms of its ethnic makeup. Um, so um, Syria, that's the issue at stake uh, these days. Uh, the Syrian question began as part of the Arab Spring, full of hope, full of optimism. Uh, why not have democracies in the, in the Arab world? Uh, but, uh, but regional powers came to the, um, came to the rescue of the Assad regime. Uh, Iran became involved through Hezbollah, uh, and I think this really explains part of the uh, Iran deal for, um, for the Obama administration. The Obama administration made the calculation, they want to have that deal at all costs, therefore they would not speak up on, um, on uh, atrocities in Syria. The Obama administration knew about the use of chemical warfare long before it announced it, precisely in order to refrain from annoying the interlocutors in Tehran. Uh, in the meantime, another complication is Turkey, uh, which responds to the movement of Kurdish autonomy in Iraq and in Syria with considerable anxiety. Uh, Turkey's afraid that an independent Kurdistan in Iraq or in Syria would lead to a destabilization of its own national sovereignty. And now Russia has come to enter the fray and China is really on the horizon with its project for One Belt, One Road, a big economic sphere from Beijing to the Mediterranean. Uh, we cannot be oblivious to these, uh, to these developments. Um, here's a map of uh, what's going on in Syria. The, um, the yellow are the Kurdish forces, that is right on the Turkish border. The red are the government-controlled um, uh, areas, and the light green are, are rebel forces. Here and there, there are still pockets of ISIS, especially in the Euphrates Valley, which is crucial for the potential Iran bridge to, to Lebanon. Uh, so, you, and you see um, down here, the Eastern Ghouta, where there's been enormous uh, fighting of late and a lot, enormous killing. The brutality of the Assad regime, which the current dictator inherited from his father, has only become clearer in the use of uh, chlorine gas and barrel bombs against his own population. There are very, very few ISIS or Sunni extremists in East Ghouta. What's happening in uh, the, with the, with the, um, 
uh, Syrian campaign of bombing against its own population is really ultimately a case of very brutal ethnic cleansing. The Syrian regime is an Alawite regime. It's an offshoot from Shia Islam. The majority of the Syrian population is Sunni. What Assad wants to do is to reduce the Sunni population as much as it can, and that's the connection to Berlin. All those people who've been forced out of Syria uh, are, have been forced out intentionally in order to undertake a demographic reshaping of the, uh, of the territory. Um, here's the, this is the, pulled out a little bit. This is Syria, this is Iraq, this is Iran, and these are the potential land routes to, to, um, to, to the Mediterranean. One runs through um, uh, Al-Tanf, a site of an important base, and another runs through Deir Ezzur, where there was recently, February 7th, a battle, a battle in which um, some uh, close to 200 Russian mercenaries were killed. Uh, which brings me to this next point. Uh, I have a lot of sympathy with the, um, with the Syrian aspiration for a humane state. I also have a lot of sympathy with the people who are suffering, but one might discount those as idealistic uh, attitudes. There's a bare-bones realist approach to what's going on in Syria. It's not just a Syrian civil war. It's not just a Syrian, Syrian rebellion. It's also a standoff between the United States and Russia. Uh, here you have the American bases up here. You have Russian bases, Russian forces down there. You may remember that uh, Putin promised to re remove all his forces a couple of months ago. Guess what? He had his fingers crossed. Uh, in, the, um, in the February 7th battle in Deir Ezzur, uh, the reports are that uh, the United States used stealth aircraft to uh, contribute to this wonderful defeat of the, uh, of the Russians, um, F-22, I believe. The, um, a response has been that uh, later in February, the Russians deployed some of their own fifth-generation stealth aircraft. Um, the reports on this are mixed, but it shows that this is not just a local war. This is almost analogous to, say, the Spanish Civil War where you had a local problem that took on international dimensions, where the adversaries in the 1930s started to test each other's mettle. Um, so um, what's going on? Um, sometimes it's hard to read what's going on inside the black box of Washington. Is there some indecision? Is, are there some holdovers from the Obama administration that are blocking uh, progress? Or shall we just say that there's been a very cautious response? I think that's probably part of, the, uh, part, of, part of the answer. That is, in one way, time is on our side. Uh, this is a war that could bleed the Russians and bleed the Iranians for resources. And if we hold our own, that could have uh, ramifications in Moscow and Tehran, uh, neither of which is a particularly stable regime. Um, we have opportunities. We can support democratic forces, that would be a good thing, but we can also resist Russia. That is, this is a place where we can defeat our big enemies while also siding with the good guys. We can push back on Iran, but we have to convince Turkey that uh, the results will not be deleterious to its own uh, integrity. Uh, so what we need 
is a willingness to show strength, as we did in Deir Ezzor. The American uh, forces performed wonderfully. Uh, we need attentive diplomacy. Frankly, I'm not convinced that our State Department is capable of that. That's not a comment about the Secretary of State. It's a comment about the character of the folks who populate positions within the State Department. Uh, and we need memory. Uh, we've got to remember that the Iranians are out for, in a very long game. They're out to defeat us. Uh, they, have, uh, they have for centuries been masters of diplomacy, and the sorts of diplomats that we've put up against them, especially in the deal negotiations, have really not been of the same quality as what they've been able to manage. At the end of the day, though, I think the lesson is that we can be strong. We have a lot on our side, uh, and um, we can, um, we can oppose our adversaries effectively if we want to. But don't assume that we always want to. And as a uh, closing slide, I leave you with this memory from the past, uh, which I will not comment on. Thanks for your attention. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.